Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. The Radio Memories Network is brought to you in part by Liberated Syndication. Podcast publishing made easy. Libsyn.com. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. Welcome to the Old Time Radio Network Detective Stories, continuing America's love affair with private eyes. We now go back to the early days of radio and our imaginations with our feature presentation. Nightmare Town by Dashiell Hammett. Read by Stuart Milligan. Episode 2 The Finn's lunchroom was little more than a corridor, squeezed in between a pool room and a hardware store. Only one customer was there when Steve entered with his new friend, Roy Camp. Hello, Mr. Reimer said Camp. How are you? The man at the counter said. And as he turned his head, Steve saw that he was blind. His large blue eyes were filmed over, but it was a calm face, the face of a man at peace with his world. He was just finishing his meal and left shortly, moving with the slow accuracy of a blind man in familiar surroundings. Reimer lives in a shack all alone, said Camp. Supposed to have tons of gold coins under his floor. Someday we're going to find him all mommicked up. A tough town, is it? asked Steve. <laughs> Couldn't help being. It's only three years old, and a desert boom town draws the tough boys. After their meal, Steve went back to the telegraph office. The girl was alone. Anything for me? he asked. She put a green check and a telegram on the counter. The telegram read, Collected bet. Paid whiting 200 for Ford. Sending balance 640. Shipping close. Watch your step. Harris. Steve leaned over the counter. Now listen, Miss Valance. I was all kinds of a damn fool yesterday, and I'm sorrier than I can say, but after all, nothing terrible happened. Nothing terrible. Is it nothing to be chased up and down the street like a rabbit by a drunken man in a filthy car? She glared at him. Steve took his check across the street to the bank. The only man in there, a little plump fellow, came to the grill. And I do something for you? Steve laid down the telegraph company's check. I want to open an account. The banker picked up the slip of green paper. Ah, <laughs> you're the gentleman who assaulted my wall with an automobile yesterday. Steve grinned. Are you going to stay in Izzard? For a while. The banker stuck a plump hand through the grill. My name's Dave Brackett. Anything I can do to help you get established, <laughs> call on me. That night, shaved and bathed, 
Steve, with his black stick beside him, played stud poker with Roy Camp and four factory workers. Prohibition didn't feature an izzard. White-hot liquor was to be had at the cost of 50 cents and a raised finger. At five to midnight, the four factory men left for work, and the game broke up. Steve and Camp left together. They walked slowly down the dim thoroughfare toward the Izzard Hotel. Not a thousand words had passed between the two men, but they had as surely become brothers in arms, as if they'd tracked a continent together. Strolling thus, a dark doorway suddenly vomited men upon them. Steve rocked back against the building from a blow on his head. Arms were around him. The burning edge of a knife blade ran down his left arm. He chopped his black stick up into a body, freeing himself from the encircling grip. He used the moment's respite to change his grasp on the stick so that he held it horizontal. Now the black stick became a whirling black arm of the night. The knob darted down at a man's head. Spinning back on its axis, the stick reversed. The ferruled end darted up, hit jawbone with a click, and no sooner struck than slid forward, jabbing deep into throat. The owner of that jaw and throat went backward out of the fight. Steve whirled in time to take the impact of a blackjack. The stick spun sidewise with thud of knob on temple. Then he saw suddenly that camp had gone down. He battered a passage to the thin man. Behind his stick, that had become a living part of him, Steve Threefall knew that rare happiness which only the expert ever finds. The joy in doing a thing that he can do supremely well. Blows he took, blows that shook him, staggered him. But he scarcely noticed him. His whole consciousness was in his right arm, and the stick had spun. As abruptly as it had started, the fight stopped. Feet thudded away, forms vanished into the more complete darkness of a side street. And Steve was standing alone, except for the man stretched out between his feet. Steve knelt, lifted Camp's head from the bricks, and saw that his thin body was ripped open from throat to waistline. Get word to... The thin man tried desperately to make the last words audible. A hand gripped Steve's shoulder. What the hell's all this? The voice of Marshal Grant Fernie blotted out Camp's words. Shut up a minute, snapped Steve, and put his ear again close to Camp's mouth. By now, the dying man could achieve no articulate sound. He tried, then he shuddered horribly and died. What's all this? repeated the marshal. A reception committee, said Steve, standing up. The others beat it around the corner. He tried to point with his left hand, then let it drop to his side. Looking at it, he saw that his sleeve was black with blood. You better get that patched up, said the marshal. Doc McPhail's is only two blocks up this street. I'll get in touch with you when I want you. Steve found the house without difficulty, a two-story building set back behind a garden. Two steps from it, Steve heard something and stopped. His right hand slid to the middle of his stick. Then, from the vine-blackened porch, a figure flung itself on his chest. Mr. Threefall! cried the figure in the voice of the girl of the telegraph office. There's somebody in the house. You mean a burglar? He stared down into the white face upturned just beneath his chin. Yes, he's upstairs, in Dr. McPhail's room. Is the doctor up there? No, no. 
He and Mrs. MacPhail haven't come home yet. He patted her soothingly on a velvet-coated shoulder, selecting a far shoulder so that he had to put his arm completely around her to do the patting. You stick here. I'll be back as soon as I've taken care of our friend. She clung to his shoulder with both hands. No, no, I, I couldn't stay here alone. I'll go with you. He bent to look into her face, and cold metal struck his chin, the muzzle of a big nickel-plated revolver in one of the hands that clung to his shoulder. Here, give me that thing, he said, and put it in his pocket. Now, keep as close as you can, and when I say down, drop flat to the floor and stay there. They went in, mounted to the second floor, and crept down the hall. Steve's outstretched hand touched a doorframe. Down, he whispered to the girl. Her fingers released his coat. He flung the door open, jumped through, slammed it behind him. A head-sized oval was black against the gray of a window. He spun his stick at it. Something caught the stick overhead. Glass crashed, showering him with fragments. There was a thud of feet on the roof of the rear porch. Steve sprang to the window in time to see the burglar making for the fence. One of Steve's legs was over the sill when the girl's arms came around his neck. No! No, don't leave me. Let him go. He got the gun out of his pocket, and as the fleeing shadow reached the fence, he squeezed the trigger. The revolver clicked. Again. Another click. Six clicks, and the burglar was gone into the night. Steve broke the revolver in the dark, and ran his fingers over the back of the cylinder. Six empty chambers. Turn on the lights, he said brusquely. The place had been ransacked. Drawers stood out, their contents strewn on the floor. The bed had been stripped. Near the door, a broken wall light, the obstruction that had checked Steve's stick, hung crookedly. In the center of the floor lay a gold watch and half a length of gold chain. He picked them up. Dr. McPhail's? The girl gasped. It's Mr. Rymer's. Rymer? Then he remembered. Rymer was the blind man who had been in the Finn's lunchroom and for whom Camp had prophesied trouble. Yes. Oh, I know something has happened to him. She put a hand on Steve's arm. We've got to go see. He lives all alone. The blind man's cabin was dark when they reached it but the front door was ajar. Rymer lay on the floor, sprawled on his back. The room was topsy-turvy. Furniture lay in upended confusion. Clothing was scattered here and there, and boards had been torn from the floor. The girl knelt beside the unconscious man while Steve found an oil lamp. He got it burning just as Rymer's filmed eyes opened and he sat up. He recognized the girl's voice at once and smiled in her direction. I'm all right, Nova, he said. Not hurt a bit. He frowned with sudden anxiety, got to his feet and moved across the room. Steve pulled a chair from his path, and the blind man dropped on his knees in a corner, fumbling beneath the loosened floorboards. His hands came out empty, and he stood up. Gone, he said. Steve took the watch from his pocket and put it into one of the blind man's hands. There was a burglar at our house, explained the girl. After he'd gone, we found that on the floor. This is Mr. Threefall. The blind man groped for Steve's hand, pressed it. Then his flexible fingers caressed the watch, 
his face lighting up happily. I'm glad to have this back. The money wasn't so much, less than $300, but this watch was my father's. As the girls started to straighten up the room, he remonstrated. Run along home, Nova. It's late, and I'm all right. I'll go to bed now and let the place go as it is until tomorrow. The girl demurred. But presently she and Steve were walking back to the MacPhail's house, through the black streets. They walked two blocks in silence. What's the matter? she asked abruptly. Steve smiled pleasantly down at her. Nothing. Why? There is. You're on your guard. You don't trust me. He tried a little of the truth. Just wondering, you did give me an empty gun to go after the burglar with, and you wouldn't let me chase him. Her hands fastened upon his lapels. Please, please, Mr. Threefall, you've got to believe me. I didn't know the revolver was empty. It was Dr. McPhail's. I took it when I ran out of the house, and as for not letting you chase the burglar... I was afraid to be left alone again. I'm a little coward. Please believe in me, Mr. Threefall. I need friends. Womanhood had dropped from her. She pleaded with the small white face of a frightened child. It's been terrible. I came here three months ago because there was a vacancy in the telegraph office. The town, I can't get accustomed to it. It's so bleak. But I had to stay. There was nowhere else to go. Some people have been nice to me. Larry, Mr. Ormsby, persuaded the McPhails to let me live with them. Mr. Reimer has helped me too, but I'm scared of everything. Of Larry Ormsby especially. It's as if there was something inside of him waiting for something. I'm so afraid. Oh, it's a nightmare. Nightmare Town was read by Stuart Milligan. It was abridged by Neville Teller and produced by Elizabeth Allard.